By now, most of us are familiar with the standard story about addiction. A person takes it too far with a drink, drug, or some other activity and finds themselves at the receiving end of an intervention. After shipping away to rehab or spending a sufficient amount of time in meetings, identifying themselves as an alcoholic or addict, the person then comes to realize the exact nature of their problem. They then spend the rest of their days speaking in front of crowds and telling the world that this is the best way to recover. In many instances, whether through subtle or not so subtle messages, the media has trained us to believe that the best and only path to recovering from an addiction is to follow these methods. But what if that just isn't the case? What if the average person who recovers doesn't even follow these methods? That's exactly what this show is designed to explore. You'll be hearing stories from people who followed a non-traditional path to recovery, but who we believe represent the silent majority of people who get over addictions. We hope you enjoy the show and that it gets you thinking about things a little differently. It is with great pleasure, then, that we welcome you to Sundays with Stories. Welcome to Sundays with Stories. I'm here with Dr. Stanton Peel and also a colleague, a friend of mine, co-producer of the Social Exchange Podcast, person who works in the recovery field, Aaron Ferguson. Stanton, thanks for being with me. Aaron, thanks for being with me. Uh, Hi, guys. Pleased to be here. So we're going to be telling a real-life story now. Stanton and I have been using case studies from celebrities, and there's some wisdom behind that because celebrities have the, the celebrity stories have the advantage of being able to be tracked from the beginning. Everyone is sort of on page with those stories. On the other hand, people have commented, and we've always sort of thought about this, that it wouldn't it be nice if the celebrities could speak for themselves and tell you if they think that you're right or if they're wrong. You know, it's only so much you can do with a story like that. Well, we have Aaron telling us his story about addiction and overcoming addiction, which doesn't match the standard tales that you'll hear in recovery groups or support groups. So Aaron, I'm going to leave it to you. We tell people a little bit about what you do and then uh, we'll, we'll hit your story. Sure. And it's apropos because I'm the opposite of a celebrity. <laughs> so you'll, you'll never, you'll never hear about in, me in some circles. Hopefully. I know you're a celebrity. Hopefully you'll never hear about me in the news yeah. or on any TV show. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I'll just say a little bit about what I'm doing right now. Um, I'm an outreach manager for a national provider of medication-assisted treatment. Um, so we provide methadone and buprenorphine um, in 49 clinics across nine states. Um, and the company is called Community Medical Services. Um, I will insert here that the views expressed here are not necessarily the views of my employer. Uh, some of them are, but I don't want to um, paint myself as representing them as a company. Um, I've been working for this company for a couple of years now. This is the third time that I've worked for a provider of this type of treatment. And it's very different this time uh, because it is low threshold access and trying to do it in a way that's just like any other doctor's office. So 
most of what people are exposed to as regards to methadone clinics in the media are pretty run down, um, you know, pretty uh, dejected sort of settings where, um, you know, they're tightly associated with parts of town that you don't want to drive through and large crowds of people who use drugs, people nodding off in the waiting room, and they're just in the media generally not depicted in all that great of a light. And we're trying to countervail that stereotype by delivering these services in a way that's just sort of mainstream and, and like going into any other doctor's office. So the clinics are all very nice. Um, you know, we deal with a lot of pretty, pretty good technology. Um, a lot of the other providers in this field are still using paper documentation and we've got everything in a digital EMR and uh, we meet remotely and use telehealth a lot and things like that. Um, the company opened the first 24-hour methadone clinic in the country, which um, Zach came out and did an article for Filter about um, a little while back, and I would definitely encourage you to read it. Um, but And then we're also working really hard to integrate with criminal justice settings in a way that is non-coercive but doesn't cut people off cold turkey if they wind up in jail because um, that's been a big problem if somebody's on a high dose of methadone and they wind up in jail. In many instances, they've been cut off cold turkey. And um, so trying to convince these jails to allow us to keep people maintained in treatment so they're not at an increased risk of overdose upon release. And so that's what my job entails is mostly going around and um, trying to advocate for people either in an inpatient abstinence-based setting or in the jails uh, that they don't get cut off their meds and then trying to build relationships with the community to really mitigate some of the stigma around people being on these medications. And I work in the South. Um, and so Texas has, you know, kind of a, a really strong leaning uh, political view. And so there is a good deal of resistance to any type of recovery that isn't uh, complete abstinence here or, or absolute 12 step involvement. And so we have a lot of folks, you know, that have been cut out of the 12 step community that wind up at our clinics and we're trying to provide them with an avenue to define recovery for themselves um, in a way that also involves medications. Whereas previously they would be, they would have to start over every day with a desire chip um, just because they're taking methadone or buprenorphine. So that's what my current work entails. And if you'd like Zach, I can tell you about how I got here. Yeah, obviously you have a passion for it and you're serious about it. And I would like to know how you got here from the beginning, including your own ameliorative process of addiction. Sure, I'll provide just a high level view. So I was born into a very large family. I have 11 siblings, nine sisters and two brothers, and we were born all over the world. Um, I was born in Malta. Uh, my brother was born in England. My sister was born in France. My other sister was born in Africa. Um, and a bunch of us after that sprinkled across different parts of the United States. Um, I grew up traveling around in a mobile home and singing on the streets and performing for money uh, throughout Europe. And then when my parents returned to the United States, singing in churches across the country uh, for a living. And that's how we made a living as performers. Uh, we were called the Star Family Singers. Um, my parents met each other in a cult called the Children of God, and you know they uh, sort of tried to splinter off and start their own group 
from that along with the wife of the leader. So one of the co-founders of the group, um, they splintered off when I was a, at a young age and sort of did their own thing. I'm not sure the exact cons, uh, the exact um, conditions under which they left the group. They claim they were excommunicated, but I think that uh, they, they tried to start their own sort of group because they were some of the leadership of the group at that time. Um, so they were very brainwashed um, with, with what they learned in that cult. And really the group stepped in at a time in their lives when they were vulnerable and provided them with a sense of community and belonging. And so they clung to that and still do. My dad's passed on, but my mom, you know, still clings to a lot of the things that she was taught there. And the language the group speak is still there even 20 years later. And so I was raised with a very extreme version of Christianity um, as, as, as propounded by Moses David, the leader of the Children of God uh, cult. And so they left the United States, the Children of God, and, and changed their base of operations to Brazil. Um, they were engaged with uh, prostitution and child prostitution and child abuse and all sorts of illegal activities um, that they used to su financially uh, support the group. And so they couldn't really operate in the United States. They had to move to some other place. Um, but they still have <laughs> satellites. They still have satellites all over the world. Um, and there have been uh, several, quite a few books actually written by people who escaped from the group. <clears throat> And I was one of those. Um, I ran away at a very young age. Me and several of my siblings all sort of rose up against our parents who had us sequestered in this uh, sort of farm outside of, of Houston a ways. And we all just kind of took off on our own. And uh, at a very young age, I just started living and taking care of myself. We all just kind of split up and went our own ways. Um, and I went to California and lived on the streets of California for most of my childhood, um, living in abandoned buildings and eating out of dumpsters and sparing change um, in Santa Cruz, California and San Francisco and San Jose. And um, I came to uh, build my own street family um, of people that I relied upon um, as a person experiencing homelessness and we clung together and stole from each other, but took care of each other. And we had this sort of love-hate relationship where, um, you know, we were all using drugs heavily and we were all sort of relying on each other. And you know, a lot of the people from that group are either in prison or dead. In fact, I'd say the majority of them are either in prison or dead. And I was lucky enough <laughs> um, to... Uh, decide at a, at a pretty crucial time when things were going downhill for that whole group of people uh, that I wanted to join the military and that I was going to try and get things together. So I was able to move back and stay with my parents just long enough to, to join the, the U.S. Navy. And Is it fair to say that you, um, you're breaking away from the cult that your parents had raised you in, you sought drugs as a proxy for some other sort of life balancing involvement and you sought relationships however destructive they were because they gave you connection as a proxy for some sort of meaningful more healthy connection uh, i would absolutely say that's the case you know um 
in the absence of sort of the normal environment that a person grows up in, um, we turn to whatever we can to meet the, the basic needs that we have. And especially in younger childhood, for me, when I was younger, drugs just happened to be there and it was part of the subculture that I operated in. Um, and I was in such rebellion to everything that I had grown up in that I was just consuming whatever was put in front of me. So it wasn't an intentional, I'm going to go out and do drugs because of X, Y, or Z, but it was, it was part of the entire coping milieu of the subculture that I was part of and, and as part of my life. And, and so experimenting through many different types of drugs, I came to find my drug of choice in heroin and um, you know, spent a pretty, pretty good portion of my life uh, both living on the streets and after I had joined the military, engaged with heroin use um, addictively and in ways that interfered with my life. What were the cues that you received that, you, I mean, you mentioned moving on to the military to sort of sort things out. And so what are the cues that you got that things needed to be sorted out? Well, the military was actually a really good experience for me. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I hadn't learned a lot of the things, the structural sort of things that they teach you there, like how to wake up in the morning and brush your teeth and take care of yourself, um, you know, practice respect towards people in a certain way, uh, follow a structured life. And I had a very sort of extreme set of goals. I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Well, hold on, and, before you move on, so I'm really sorry to interrupt. What sure. was it that, before you made the leap to the military, what was it that th made you think this is something that you should do? So there was a guy that kind of took me under his wing when I was living on the streets of Santa Cruz. Um, and his, his name was Aaron too. Um, and he was an ex-Navy SEAL. And I really looked up to him. And he kind of took me under his wing and protected me at times. And um, you know, he was a real badass. I mean, the guy had been to, to the Persian Gulf several times and had done things that you'll never hear about. And so I really looked up to him and decided that I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And that's what, that's why I joined the Navy. And so, sorry, I interrupted you while you were talking about your process there. And maybe we'll just get into the juicy part. <laughs> um, and it happened to be in a, a really lucky time when, when, the, when the police were, this was back in Santa Cruz, California in the 90s. Um, and looking back on it, I've come to learn that I was lucky enough to be accessing some of the earliest syringe service programs there. And um, there was a, you know, this whole battle being waged around harm reduction services and being able to provide syringe services to people. And, you know, so, but then the police started really cracking down on, on Santa Cruz at that time and just arresting people wholesale. And I was involved with some people that committed a crime um, I had an opportunity to participate in it and had declined. I had a guy come to me and ask me, hey, we're going to go rob this person. And it was just another way of getting money for drugs. And I was about to go with him and the girl that I was dating at the time who was, I was living in a van with her. She talked me out of it and told me that she'd sell her bike um, to get, to get me well because I was dope sick. And so I didn't go. And then three months later, after I had left town and gone back to be with my parents to get ready to try and join the military, uh, several people went with him and they, uh, I don't know the exact specifics of the situation, but they had, they murdered a guy um, who was one of the pillars of the community and owned a hospital. 
and there was a nationwide manhunt for them. Um, they were, you know, they were on FBI's most wanted and um, they were arrested. And the four of them, I think they're all sitting in prison right now. Um, and, and so, you know, that was, that, that was really what was happening during the time when I took off and decided to turn things around. Um, I came inches away from <laughs> inches away from being involved with all of that. Um, and so then after spending several years in the Navy, I had worked really hard. I went through SEAL training and, you know, I didn't make it all the way through. They wound up kicking me out about halfway through and telling me, come back in a little while, which was standard practice. Most enlisted people um, try three times before they go, th they make it through SEAL training. So they sent me to an aircraft carrier and uh, I trained and trained um, and I was physically and mentally prepared to go back through uh, the training. But then during that time, I got pulled into a court case with this whole murder that had taken place. And they flew me from the Persian Gulf um, onto a helicopter of, off of an aircraft carrier to testify in this trial. And um, so I went ahead and I had, I, I had to tell the truth and testify against the guy who had planned the whole thing. And they sentenced him to life with, with no parole. Um, and so then I stayed in the Navy during that time and kept training to go back to SEAL training. And I had already had my orders cut to return. And I happened to donate plasma and found out that I had hepatitis C. And, and so that disbarred me um, fr from going. And so it really, that was a turning <laughs> point in my life because I had all of these sort of career aspirations that went down the drain that I'd been training so hard for. And I just fell back into drug use pretty heavily at that time. If I could so sort, of, I, sort of curate this uh, in a way that probably doesn't do it justice, but at least it'll give like uh, the few stepping stones that you already laid out. You had your family and sort of like, that's all you had at one point and realized that there were somewhat broader horizons, even though, I mean, it doesn't sound appealing to live on the streets, to be fending for yourself, to be using drugs, um, but it was a better option for you. And then you sort of narrowed or broadened your focus, however you want to look at it, toward military involvement, and you worked your ass off to do that. It was sort of your livelihood at that time, and then got disconnected from that for no fault of your own. I mean, it sounds like Santa and I were talking last week about contingencies, and contingency is a, a useful way to think about human development insofar as it's it's acknowledging that people have agency and you were exercising that at the same time, you just had a lot of bad moral luck. It sounds like it, this, these things are happening, the good and the bad through no fault of your own. So I just sure. wanted to lay that out. So now yeah, you're, it's, you're done with the military and. Um, yeah. Well, it was, it was a strange situation there because if I had graduated that training, I would have probably wound up in the Persian Gulf. Um, and one of the guys who was in training around me, he was in the class right after me, two months after me, was Marcus Luttrell, um, who there's a book called Lone Survivor, and there's been a film made about him. Uh, one of the greatest catastrophes in Navy SEAL history took place. Um, and he was the only survivor in his whole platoon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a good chance that I may have wound up in that situation if I had graduated training right around the same time as him. You know, I, I may have been cut those similar orders and I'm, I probably most likely would have wound up in the Middle East. So I don't know that I'd be here today 
if I hadn't contracted hepatitis C and been, been barred from being in training. Mm -hmm. Um, so as ironic as it is, you know, I don't know, have to know why things happen, but I can appreciate, um, even though I didn't see it at the time that, that, that was a good thing. You work in the life process program with me and with Stanton. And so we're sort of in agreement that there are some basic fundamental life processes that people go through when they develop and become better versions of themselves. So I know that I'm cutting it short where I'm doing it in the interest of time, but from the moment that now you're leaving the military, to which upon reflection, you sort of gave it a stoic outlook. Like you, these things seem disadvantageous, but at the same time, there are things that could have happened that are equally, if not more disadvantageous, if you were, if you would maintain those connections and involvements. Um, from that point that you're not able to pursue that military career to the point where you are now, what are the kinds of things that had to come into play in your life that made it better, worth living and worth building on? Yeah. So for one, I'll say I, I've been very lucky, you know, number one, to be a white person. I, I really don't think I would be alive right now if I had been black or brown with, with that? the way that I grew up, just because of the bias and policing and uh, with the criminal justice system. You know, I, I was in and out of jail so many times um, that I would probably still be in prison if I had black skin hmm. um, and might have been dead. You know, I may have joined a gang or something and, and just had a different trajectory. And so I was lucky in that respect. I'm also very lucky to have family members who, you know, my immediate family members being my sisters that are close in age, they were very supportive of me. Um, I've come across other people who didn't have those supports that really struggled, um, especially being incarcerated and not having anyone on the outside to really be there for them. And so when I fell into sort of despondency after leaving the military and wound up living on the streets of San Francisco, um, I knew that there were people in my life that I could draw on. And I knew that there were people in my life there for me. And if that hadn't been the case, it's probably, it's most likely that I would still be either homeless, I may not be alive, or I may be incarcerated. And so I had people in my life that were supportive of me. And I was far away from them and sort of bought into the whole 12 step mindset early on. I got, had a criminal justice case where I was mandated to go to Aaron, just let me ask you the second time around in homelessness, how old were you? That was in my twenties. So that was, you know, 20, 20, between 23 and 27. And, um, it was, it was clearly the, at the end of just some really bad decisions and a lot of really strong involvement with drugs and, uh, you know, not really it, just allowing things to pile up in my life and not taking care of a, a lot of the stressors that had built up early in life. And, and so really during that was addiction to me when I was younger, living on the streets, the drug use was more just, it happened to be there and it was part of the culture, but really addiction took place for me in my twenties when I was really turning to it, to, uh, to avoid and, and, and sidestep some of the really strong issues that I was dealing with. What did you replace addiction with? What got you from second time? Well, if, if only the second time living on the streets when you were in San Francisco as an adult, a young adult to having a career that's sort of flourishing. Well, it's, it's tricky because a person looking from the outside would say that the system worked. Mm -hmm. um, 
but looking back on it, I can see that that wasn't the case. I, you know, I, I was, I had a criminal justice case and was, uh, it wound up being sent to a therapeutic community. Um, so I, you know, I spent seven and a half months in this sort of scare you straight standard attention, uh, type of place that was run by the state in Texas. And I asked for it. Um, I was looking at doing maybe state jail time and had heard a lot of bad stories about Texas jails and said, well, I'm going to try and get something softer by requesting treatment. And I had also reached a point in my life where I just was going nowhere and wanted to get off the drugs. Um, it was very depressed and suicidal. And so I went away to this therapeutic community and looking at the success rate, just from the people that I knew, it was probably less than 1% uh, as a success rate at that therapeutic community. Um, yet for some reason, um, I was just ready and I was done and I was on probation for two and a half years and jumped through every hoop that they told me to jump through and was lucky enough to have family support, uh, for my sisters and was lucky enough to sort of piece things back together after that. Uh, I fell into the 12 step groups early on because that was all I had been exposed to in terms of recovery. And uh, it was presented as this is the only way. And, and I didn't know about alternatives until years later when I had been sober for a long time. And I started to really question a lot of the things that I had been taught in that group and started to really realize, I, th I think growing up in a cult um, inoculated me in many ways against a lot of the ideologies involved with the 12-step group. Um, in ways that I wouldn't have been otherwise. In, and, in the sense that you had already reacted against the cult. So you weren't going to just sail into the 12 steps. Yeah, and I never really bought into it. I never worked the steps. You know, I never had a solid sponsor. <laughs> um, I just kind of, you know, went to the meetings because that's what you were supposed to do. But the group speak just made the hair on the back of my neck raise up, <laughs> you know, and it just rang a bunch of bells with me. And so I think that made it easier. And when I came across the work of Stanton Peel and when I came across the work of others who had challenged this paradigm, it was liberating for me. And it really helped me to find my way out of the, the woods there. So you're working now in um, in a sort of alternative programming something that's done i like you said i visited your work or the the central office of cms that's what your what the organization is called and what i witnessed is just human beings being good to other human beings and we could say that with no uncertainty so i can see how you fell into that kind of work it's uh, medication assisted treatment but it's also helping people who are maybe the most disparaged that there are. I mean, I, I saw people who came in. A lot of people are homeless in in Phoenix and near areas in Arizona there. And I know that you're working in Texas. You're working against a system that who sees, it, if anything, it's incarceration or the equivalent of incarceration with a doctor involved, I guess. That's what they yeah. think treatment is. <laughs> yeah. um, so I'd like to, if we can, I'm sure Stanton will have other questions about your story, but I'll keep pushing for time. I'll be the jerk who pushes on with time. Just real quick, I'm going to, I'll say something about um, MAT and Stanton's and my last episode of the show and your response to it, which I think was really healthy. It's pretty cool to see uh, any sort of disagreement or 
or offering of more information or seeking more information from another person who works among us. So it's like two people speaking and then another person from the same organization who can get on board with everything that we're saying. Plus you want to add a little bit of value from your end. So uh, Stanton and I were talking about a New York times piece, which said something like it was saying, Oh, there's two methods of uh, evidence-based treatment that work. Why aren't we using them? It's contingency management and it's medication assisted treatment. And Stanton and I were sort of making the point that both of these have their wisdom in some ways, like being able to take drugs well, there's wisdom behind that because that's going to keep people alive in some sense. Contingency, there's wisdom behind that because people do make choices, but it's just the attitudes that form the basis of pushing these things as treatment. And Santa and I were trying to get a nuanced conversation about, and you brought up the fact that, look, I'm working in a community where there really are two choices, maybe three. I mean, you can go with the justice system, uh, you can, or just like try to use drugs and then not have any safe supply anywhere and do it. So at your own risk, or you can enter some sort of like 12 step rehabilitation program that doesn't allow you to do anything that you want to do. There's, it's basically jail, or you can enter this really approachable system that helps people thrive in other ways besides just taking drugs. Um, anyway. I, yeah. I noted that point. I wanted to bring it up and I wanted to give you time to respond to that. And then I'm going to actually bow out. I won't respond to, to what you say here, but I'll let, I'll let Stanton take it away after that. Yeah. And so I, I just, I just want to give a little background of how I came to even acknowledge these medications as a valid path. You know, I, my first reaction was one of, of the sort of abstinence-based, we're just trading one addiction for another. Uh, sort of mindset. And I was working for my first job as a counselor. I went to work for an abstinence-based treatment provider that was doing a day treatment for uh, was drug court. And we had a woman who was in the groups every day and sort of nodding off. And uh, the other clients were very upset by that and saying that she was interfering with their recovery because she was visibly impaired. Um, and everyone knew that she was going to a methadone clinic. And so myself and the, the rest of the staff in our staffing meetings were talking about her and really prepared to discharge her because our, according to our appraisal, she wasn't getting the benefit of treatment because she was continuing to use. Um, and at that time I was, you know, I just didn't have my head on right about this and didn't know a lot of things. And so I was right down that same mindset until somebody um, almost on accident found out that she had a two month old baby at home that was keeping her up all night. And that that was the main reason why she was nodding off in group. Um, no one had taken the time to really dig and find out what was going on with her. They all just knew that she was taking methadone. And so that's when sort of some of the cracks started to form in my mentality around it. And so I, I did change my mind um, I went from being sort of against all these medications to accepting them, not, not, not as the only path, but as a valid approach for people to, number one, be safe um, and not be exposed to contaminants out there in the drug supply, um, but also maybe not be in physical withdrawal enough to pay attention to some of the other things that they want to take care of in their life. And, and so that's kind of my view of it. I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to the, the notion of a, a brain disease that 
methadone normalizes as you know Nora Volko and some of these other people are claiming i i am more one of the behaviorism approach that that subscribes to this schedule of reinforcements so i think that the reason why putting somebody on methadone tends to alleviate some of their symptoms is that and what we're calling symptoms is basically social functioning dsm5 criteria I think that the reason why is because they're switching from a chaotic random schedule of reinforcement to a consistent schedule of reinforcement. Um, and I don't think it's due to the particular chemical properties of the substance. I think it's more of a uh, learning and conditioning situation. And, and I think that that's, that explains why heroin assisted treatment would have just as good, if not better results than, than putting people on methadone um, and so I, I have a very different view of this than most of my colleagues. Um, most of my colleagues believe that, you know, addiction is a chronic relapsing brain disease and it's caused by the nature of these substances um, and the dopaminergic pathways and that methadone somehow normalizes that due to its long acting properties. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't subscribe to that at all. And I don't subscribe to the notion that people need to be on these medications in order to, to recover if, if they have an opioid use problem. Um, I fully agree with, with the data. And I, I, let's say I accept the evidence that most people do recover um, and most people don't do it through the traditional methods that we've been prescribed, um, which is why I really like this show and the impetus behind it. Um, but I'm, I'd be really interested to hear what Stan Peel thinks about that uh, view about schedules of reinforcement. Let me get, do a little transition, Stanton. I yeah. would imagine right off the bat, then I, I promise I'll shut up, that you might take issue with very little of what Aaron said, except for the, for the fact that it's being called medication in the first place. Just that, that linguistic slip packs a powerful punch. Yeah. Well, I... Uh... I don't know that I could do any better than Zach and Aaron have done already. I mean, what I hear you saying is <clears throat> you're you yourself in different ways had to get a structure in life. And, you know, I mean, prison's a structure in life, but who wants to put people in prison? And you participate in a program that allows people like you yourself had to learn, you had to learn to brush your teeth and, go to bed when you went into the military, you know, if we decide, if we prescribed the military as a cure for addiction, that, that'd be a pretty long way to go. And, but you're saying for people who are generally a pretty fragmented place, you participate in a program that allows them to organize their lives and to learn how, as you yourself learned how, to lead a fully functioning life. I mean, you have a job now and you have a family. And, you know, good enough. But I, I, by the way, I just want to commend the fact that you work for the Life Process Program at the same time that you're, how you described, a manager in an MAT program. So, you know, you're balancing these things already. And I, I think one thing, I don't, I don't want to get you in any trouble, but you say you sometimes have to go to these trainings where you have to bite your tongue when you're maybe you just describe that experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's really being in this role has caused me to be in very drastically different groups. You know, I'm also on the leadership team of the urban survivors union, which is the national drug users union. 
And I'm deeply passionate and involved with people who want to see reform to the way that medication-assisted treatment is delivered. Um, and whether we call it medication or not, by the way, I don't care. But I, I find myself in these rooms of people that are so drastically different. Um, you know, I'll be in one meeting where addiction is being described as a disease, as an afterthought. And I'll be in another meeting where it's, you know, it would be absurd to even bring up the, the concept. And um, I, uh, it's really, an, it's, it's an interest, it's almost surreal sometimes to, to, to be in an environment where you're surrounded by treatment professionals who have not even taken the time to question um, this entire paradigm and, and having been pro part of the life process program and, and having realized what the evidence says and, and realized how mistaken we are as a culture about all of this, it is really surreal at times. I, I, we're running a little bit out of time. I wanted to jump into a whole other topic. <clears throat> um, are you traumatized by your youth? I don't view myself as a, as a victim of trauma. You know, I, I survived a lot of trauma, but I'm not currently traumatized, you know, and- uh, You have a family of your own. <laughs> you have how many, one child or- I have two, actually. Two children. Yeah. Is there some sense that we can say that you learned from your own experience? Well, you're not going to create a cult and <laughs> have Hopefully your kids not. out in the street and- I guess you're probably not planning on them being Navy SEALs or anything like that. Are you a better person for your experience? Absolutely. Um, I think that the, the trauma that I've experienced has has propelled me in life. Really, it's it's helped me more than anything, and I wouldn't take it back. So, uh, you know, I don't view it as um, the, this thing to carry around on my back and always try to avoid using drugs around. I do really have come to see it as um, a necessary part of my development and, and uh, have come to see the positive sides of it. But I never worked with a therapist who taught me how to frame it as, as um, you know, one-to-one -one relationship between trauma and addiction. So I was never inculcated into that mindset. Where you, uh, you describe being in situations where you're sitting there and everybody's going down the brain theory and you're like going, oh man. Have you since been exposed to situations where people are explaining how they're permanently damaged and addicted due to trauma? Have you had that seance now? I, I certainly have. Um, it's quite frustrating when people put trauma forward as whatever you say it is, um, because I try and think scientifically, and I'm very attuned to this defeasibility problem where people will say, well, we don't really know what this thing is, yet we're claiming that it exists. Um, and, and that's a real problem because it just opens up this vacuum of information that people step into and make all sorts of claims. And I think that's what happens with trauma. If you just say, well, trauma is whatever you say it is, well, then how could we ever possibly measure it? How could we ever tell if it exists and what effect it has? It, it really is quite confounding. It's almost like you could, you know lift off the curtain of like a quarter of your life. I mean, when people hear the story that you've told, it can bring tears to your eyes. I mean, at different places. Um, it's almost like you could be sitting there and somebody could describe their trauma and you must be sitting there thinking, oh, for God's sake, they call that trauma. <laughs> 
Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's, I think that the treatment industry is implicit in causing people to frame things in a way that maybe isn't as helpful. And, and there, there's a delicate balance between saying, just pull yourself up by your, by your bootstraps and, and acknowledging, you know, where there's pain. But um, to have this notion that you are an automaton at the other end of previous causes, uh, I don't think is helpful. And so that's why I love the life process program because we get to empower people um, through their own strengths that are inherent to them as a person and through their own values to, to take the reins and, and really make a better life. Zach, we've gone, you know, about as long as you hope to go. I, do you want to call it all a, to a close? I'll just say, Aaron, um, in a strange way, you know, nobody wants to expose a person to trauma. We'd like to eliminate all abusive children. I, you can't say you want to eliminate all cults because in, uh, in the United States, you're allowed to belong to a religion and you're allowed to raise your kids that way. So, you know, it's impossible to remove every possible source of unpleasantness and difficulty in people's lives. Um, and so forever people are going to be dealing with things like that. And I just don't want to sound glib or anything. I, I really don't want to make it sound like, oh, I'm recommending this or anything. But you've come to a complete view, pretty much, you know, you've looked at clouds from both sides now. You know, you've become a pretty complete, empathic, helpful human being who can raise a family. And, and you know, in, in a strange way, again, I just don't want to sound glib, you've benefited from all of the kind of stress and duress you had in your life. And of course, as I said, not, we don't want to put anybody through that because you've mentioned several places in that life where you could be dead. And that's what harm reduction is about. It's allowing people to get through these experiences and turn them around and get on the other side of them without risking their lives on an hourly basis. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, uh, it, it's a beautiful thing to see somebody acknowledge that they have a say in what they do with their past experiences. And I, I really think if we can empower people to do that and recognize that they do have a say in what they do with it, that they can use adversity as a way to propel themselves upward and forward, that that is the real way to deal with trauma. Um, and then that's, that's really what I, what I love about what we're doing here with life process. Aaron, hey, Zach, do you want to pull this together in uh, the last minute or so? Always, always making me look good. Um, Aaron, we, you and I, when we spent time together in Arizona, we were talking about trauma. And I don't know if you remember exactly how you put this. I'm not giving you much to go on. So you can ad lib here if, if you don't remember. But we were talking about this sort of difficulty talking about using adversity as toolbox you know you had to go through it may as well figure out how you can make the most of it and propel yourself forward um you know stanton's saying when somebody is undergoing something tough you wouldn't say you know what you need a little trauma you know you can't prescribe that going forward there's this entropy problem you don't know what's really going to happen you can't say go stand on the edge of a cliff or something but you can say you can ask people to talk about their stories from the past and use those as to map on to the present day into the future to make more sense of the world. You had some way of articulating that. I don't know if you could, and you typically have a good way of putting things into words like that. I don't know if you could put that a better way. 
Well, I, you know, I guess one of the things that I try and emphasize with people is that perspective is a matter of use it or lose it. Um, it it's something that we have at our disposal um, that is there waiting for us to, to either use it to our own detriment or to our own benefit. And it's not something that is just handed to us. Um, it, it's actually probably one of the few things that we do have control over. And to, to realize that and to deeply internalize that is, is really liberating. And with rejecting the disease concept and with rejecting the fixed mindset um, and the learned helplessness that, that comes along with it, uh, we can really learn to build something in our lives of meaning. And at the end of the day, that's the best inoculation against addiction. Aaron, I'm really grateful for you sharing your story and also for sort of piecing together the, the comments that Stanton usually gets and that we've gotten from just the last episode alone saying, well, how can you be dismissive of A, B, and C? Or when you talk about trauma, how can you not acknowledge it? And you're sort of taking on, I shouldn't say devil's advocate, but that the advocacy of that position in a way that we can that sees that it jibes with our uh, methods as well. And so I'm really, really grateful for that. And Stanton, grateful for your being on as well and asking pointed questions. Thank you both. Definitely. I'm so grateful for, for both of your work and really encourage you to keep it up. It's a much needed candle in the darkness. And so thank you so much. Thanks so much, Aaron. All right.